you published a blog post this week called Kids and Mental Health, A Brief Guide for Parents. And I thought we could take today to talk it through and discuss some of the things you mentioned. I like the framework that you have there and, and the thoughts. I also like, in general, I like hearing podcasts when people discuss blog posts because blog posts tend to be like highly structured and thought through and, you know, written like a, I don't know, like a structured essay. And as I read through this, I was like, you know, there's probably a lot of folks who listen to the podcast who've never visited the, the Zen Founder blog, which is zenfounder.com if you're interested. But so I wanted to take the opportunity to do that today. Surprise, we have a blog. Yep. Zenfighter.com, subscribe to the email list. That's what you're going to want to do. Get a free email course on in search of work-life balance, why we're failing, and how to do better. We plan to talk through the issues faced by startup founders and the people close to them. That overused phrase, work-life balance. It is an amazingly focusing time. This is what we do, you know, aside from our families, this is our whole work life. I am also known as Dr. Walling. You know this woman, a little more zen in the startup life. Those days were a mental struggle. I have been stressed in the past and I know that I will be in the future. A founder and his or her significant other would both get value from the episode. So what motivated you to uh, write this post or what were you thinking as you were putting it together? I think I wanted to put something out right around the beginning of the school year for many families with kids, because I think it's a time of increased stress for a lot of families and certainly a lot of kiddos. And I think the the spirit of this post is to try to normalize that childhood is is kind of hard. Like kids are going through some difficult things. I think most parents know that, but I, I also think that we are still contending with this fictionalized version of childhood where people are, you know, idyllic and happy and playful all the time and, and children are to be protected from everything that's hard. And that's just not the reality of life for most kids and, and maybe even shouldn't be. Yeah, that's, I think, the tough part, right? Is there's got to be this balance of challenges that they overcome, but not make it so hard. And especially, I mean, I think the other thing is, you know, if, if you have, if you have a child, obviously every kid is different and it's like parenting, having t- the same two parents with multiple children who need to be parented differently. Right. And, and not only the differences, but kind of being on the lookout for things that are out of the ordinary. I mean, I think that's something we've struggled with with our oldest for years is he's he's just very different than other children, not just in our family, but, you know, just most kids. And so it's sometimes beyond uh, the expectation to just be like, hey, can you just go to a public school and and just be okay and follow along like everyone else does, you know, and that hasn't been his path. And I think that that flexing with that and realizing, yeah, he very well may do great things in his life because of how unique his thinking is and because how he views the world and how he views life. But it also makes it, you know, public school or just kind of standardized education, a big challenge for him. And I think it's helpful as a parent to have some framework for like a conversation about kids and mental health, because a lot of us, it's not like you have a parenting manual that everyone reads. It's like required reading before you bring your baby home that has an overview of what mental health 
functioning looks like in kids at different ages. So like us, I think many parents are struggling to sort of answer the question like, is this normal? If it's not normal, is it okay? Is it a disorder? Is our kid mentally ill or is this kid just quirky? Like how do we how do we answer those questions and how do we think about mental health in kids is an important, I think, framework to consider when you are when you're, you know, raising kids. Yeah, and that's the thing. In the article, you say, as a society, we're beginning to catch up with what psychologists have long known, that the foundation of mental health is built in childhood. And so that obviously puts a lot of pressure on the parents to try to shape that early. And you have a quote from a Harvard publication that says, healthy brain architecture depends on a sturdy foundation built by appropriate input from a child's senses and stable responsive relationships with caring adults. And isn't it, I mean, isn't a lot of this most critical in like the first five years or five to seven years? Obviously at any time, if kids have a tumultuous life, it can it can wreak havoc. But I'm imagining, you know, a child whose parents divorce when, when he's 13, is perhaps a lot better off than if, if his parents divorce when he's four or five. See, I wouldn't make that assumption because there's so many things that go into how that child's going to respond to that event, right? You can have parents who do a really good job getting divorced, who do a good job supporting each of their individual attachments to their child who do a good job of helping that child process their emotions, who do a good job of being responsive to the child's needs, to the child's behaviors. And then you do, you know, you might have parents who have an older child and sort of assume like, oh, this doesn't matter that much. This kid's going to be fine. He doesn't care about this anyway because he's more tuned into playing video games with his friends and completely miss the mental health needs of that 13-year-old because they aren't looking for that or they're assuming it's, it's not important anymore. And so I think at every, at every developmental age, kids are going to express their emotional needs quite differently. And sometimes I, I feel like it takes a PhD to be a parent or at least it takes a PhD to be a parent of our kids because... It, tracking each kid's developmental status along with whatever stressors they're experiencing at any given time is this kind of complicated combination of factors that that shapes how they're going to express their distress as well as express things that they are they're happy and satisfied in so i think you know in the article we talk about just where to begin like how to begin thinking about mental health for for kids and i think of course, we're going to think about the quality of what's happening at home. Are you connecting? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Are you helping kids learn how to articulate their emotional experiences or their fears or things that they are worried about? Yeah, and I think a lot of that, I mean, the way I envision that as a, as a layman is being able, I guess not dismissing a lot of things, like actually talking things through with kids, even from the time that they're very young, asking why why is it that you know, what are you worried about and, and why are you worried about that? And well, that's, you know, that is an unlikely thing, but I understand why you're concerned with it. And talking to them almost like they're a little, at least in these cases, I, I think of it like talking to them like they're s- as smart as adults, you know, they may not be as mature as adults, but they're certainly intelligent beings who have some capacity to to reason and think things through as long as they're not upset because then they don't tend to have that much capacity to do that. But I, I think of, of talking through with one child why they're scared about a, a house fire, you know, or why they're scared about 
thunder, like what that actually is and why that would be scary or even not having a, a big light on in the room, only having a tiny little night light and why that should suffice and, and why they really, why they're scared without a lot of light and then trying to talk through why that, how light impacts their sleep quality. And if they have a lot of light, it, they won't sleep as well and this and that stuff. So I've, I mean, as long as they, I have the time and I'm not stressed about it. I actually, I enjoy those kind of conversations and, and trying to help a child learn the right and wrong or not right and wrong is not the right word. It's, it's more like just trying to help them reason through their own fears and learning how they can kind of get through them. Yeah. Like learning what, what is the purpose of fear and how to like listen to fear, but also not be ruled by fear, right? Fear is a sign of danger. You, you should be afraid if you're crossing the street, like you should have a little spike of fear that reminds you to look both ways or reminds you to be careful, but not so afraid that you won't ever cross the street. And I, I think helping kids work through those things is a really, really important, obviously, part of parenting. And I think you said something that's really key is that you have to feel like you have the bandwidth for that. You know, if you are going to help kids develop a strong foundation of mental health, you yourself have to have a strong foundation of mental health, which means you can't be so stressed or have such a packed schedule that you don't have time to process with them and you don't have the patience or bandwidth to have some of these conversations, which can feel sort of circuitous and emotional and kids are upset and it takes a while to calm them down right. have to have energy. And that's the, that's the struggle is at times in all of our lives, you don't have the energy or you don't have the time to do it. Right. And it just depends on the season of life right now. I feel like I have more energy and more time to deal with that than I have perhaps, you know, at any time in the past couple of years, and that's a luxury that I'm I'm enjoying, but that's hard in a day-to-day -day life, especially if you, you know, if you're working nine to five and you have a long commute home and then you slog away making dinner and then you're trying to get kids into bed and they're they're not listening to you and then they're concerned about the this or the that, well then your patience is really short. And it isn't necessarily it's definitely a luxury to be able to have that patience, I believe. Yeah, and something you can cultivate within yourself, right? It's not simply a product of how full your schedule is. It's how you manage your stress and anxiety. And I think one of the things, for example, like as your kids are preparing or have gone back to school and are adjusting to new sets of peers, new classrooms, it might be a really exciting adjustment, but for some kids, at least it's going to be stressful and upsetting. So one of the things that you can do as a parent is to carve out a little more space in your schedule or a little more time anticipating that during these periods of big shifts, kids are often a little bit dysregulated. They don't sleep as well. They're cranky and whiny when they get home. It's not going to be as smooth sailing as it was when their day involved the trappings of summer. So giving yourself bandwidth as a parent to have extra energy to, to deal with sort of the, the bumps that might come up during a time of increased stress is pretty important. That's part of you taking care of yourself so you can take good care of your kid. I like what you said earlier about fear, you know, and, and f the purpose of fear, but not letting it drive you. And because I have, well, I mean, I have some friends, I have some relatives who and I don't talk to them as, as much as I used to. And there, there's a reason for that. But when I used to talk to them about stuff like, hey, I'm thinking about buying a rental house, you know, and it was always like comments like, yeah, well, you know what could happen there? You get a tenant in there that like runs a crack house. Or so, I, I specifically remember someone saying that to me. And yeah, my dad had a rental once and, and he had to, guy answered the door with a shotgun. And I was always thinking like, yeah, what, 
like your whole life is ruined by what couldn't go wrong, you know? And then we'd have comments, even comments about using Wi-Fi in a house and someone's like, yeah, you know, someone can snoop in on your signal and blah, blah. And it's like, yes, I know they can hack my stuff, but the convenience of that is worth it. And it was funny. It's like, there's this, I think it, you see it in adults. It's like, this person would never have started a company. They never would have started Drip. They never would have gone out on their own because everything was about fear and about how much could go wrong and how they could go out of business and and how you can get sued for patents and how you know you could let people down. And it was just this fear-driven decision-making process. And they're further and further away from that I got. Because I was, I'll say, you know, in my younger years, I was raised with that in mind. There was this this sense of, of fear and foreboding about a lot of things, especially unknown things. And as I got away from that and went to college and then graduated and then started cutting my teeth doing my own things, I slowly shed that, especially as I dove more into entrepreneurship. And so I'm glad you brought that up. I simply bring that up as, as a thought of like, you may, you know, if you're listening to this, you may know people like that, or you may feel that way sometimes. And I feel like if your life is kind of driven, driven by the fear of what can go wrong and you're, and you're not taking some calculated risks, I think you could be selling yourself short. And that's another thing that we talk about in the article and you're, you're talking about it. You haven't mentioned it directly, but I know you've talked about it on the podcast and other times is that you were raised by one of your parents who has a very serious anxiety disorder. And obviously that's been something that you've worked through over the course of your life, but a big thing as you look at your kids or, or as we have thought about who our children are and what they come into this world with, one of the things that they come with through my family and yours is a biological predisposition toward anxiety. And so when you are thinking about how to support your kids from a mental health perspective, one of the most important things that you can do is at least take a look at your family history and kind of identify, do you come from a family that tends to run a little anxious or does your family have a history of depression? Do they have a history of substance abuse? Because of course, those things don't set in stone your kid's destiny, but they are, or they can be indicators of a biological or genetic loading toward those kinds of challenges that Man, if you know that you are that you have a kid like we do who is pretty sensitive to anxiety and you know that there are generations of wallings and muter spas that come before that are sensitive to anxiety, we have a little bit better information about what kind of support our kid might need. And when he's going through a transition and he's acting like like a little terror, it's largely due to his inability to manage his anxiety that's driving some of his behavior. So it's a time for us to be more sensitive to him and help him with the underlying anxiety, not rain down the fury of type A parents who are intolerant of kids who are acting out. Yeah, it's a big leg up to have that knowledge and to be able to try to deploy it strategically. And I try to remind myself of those kinds of things when any of our kids is doing it. Like, what is what is the motivation for this? Are they actually trying to be a pain in the ass? Or is there a motivation that's coming from inside or from some deep-seated fear or some other behavior that's coming out? I also like how you talk about the link between mental health and physical health. Obviously, we've talked about that on the show in the past, but specifically, you talk about how there's some evidence that common childhood diagnoses like ADHD may be at least partially caused in some kids by not having enough physical movement and not having enough high quality sleep, right? And I'd imagine that could be caused by looking at screens all day, which we didn't used to do. I mean, I know we used to play console video games, but it is just, you know, it's 10x what it was when we were kids. And we, I feel like the generation before mine 
was extremely active outside all the time. I feel like we were less active, but I've still went out and ran and played and did a lot of stuff. And I feel like the 90s and early 2000s and then the current generation have even less physical movement built into their their day-to-day routines than we did as kids. Yeah, so that again, as a parent or someone who hangs out with kiddos, when you feel concerned about uh, the emotional state of a kid or you're seeing a pattern of behavior where like you're raising your eyebrows and wondering, oh, do we have a problem here? You have to stop and ask yourself, like, are all of the physical needs being checked off? Enough sleep, enough movement, enough water, to be honest, enough and the right kinds of nutritious foods. Those things certainly shape how all of us respond to the challenges in our lives. They shape our mood, but all the more the case with children who have less control and less ability to regulate their physical bodies than grownups do. I read a really interesting study a couple of years ago about the relationship between like sort of teenage angst that we all come to associate with the moodiness of teenagers, that that may be very much driven by lack of sleep, that teenagers need 10 to 12 hours of sleep. They just need so much more sleep than most of their schedules afford them. And so you look at teens and you think, oh, that's a really tumultuous time. And it is for a variety of reasons, of course, but one of the key drivers of that moodiness really may be sleep-related, not so much hormones and not so much the ups and downs of social relationships. I remember you mentioning that the first time, I don't know, a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking back that my kind of group of achievers, you know, my, my cohort group that I hung out with at school was kids who played sports or, well, kids played sports and excelled academically. We were like student athletes, right? And several of us, there were there were several of us that would sleep like literally, literally 10 to 12 hours at night, right? So if I had to wake up at seven, I'd, well, it would be 12 on the weekends and it would be like 10 during the week. And I remember us talking about this during the day. And there was one friend who never did that. He was like, oh, you guys sleep way too much. And there were like three or four of us that slept a lot. And we came to find out that he, this guy who happened to not be an athlete, he took like an hour nap every afternoon. And it was this group of people who got ridiculous 1400s on the SAT, you know, noted out as 1600 and, and got really good grades. I mean, it was like valedictorian and the salutatorian and the, and it was kids who were excelling and didn't have a ton of angst. And obviously this is a very small, you know, my, my anecdote is not, does not equal data. Right. But I remember being struck by that and hearing other kids being like, yeah, no, I'm great on seven hours sleep. Always thinking like, whoa, I wish I could do that. Like, I wish I could exist on seven hours sleep because it's a drag to have to waste this much of my life basically sleeping. But I realize now that one of the, for me, one of the reasons that I think I was able to function and not have such such drama personally in high school, because I really didn't have, I didn't love high school, but it wasn't tumultuous for me, was probably because A, I worked my body out a lot, right? I mean, you know, you and I were both athletes and that was a ton of work and then getting enough sleep at night. You know, those of you who are listening who are not quite at the teenage phase yet and have younger children, kids who go to bed earlier, kids who get a long night's sleep, even when they're little guys, that tends to be related to mental health outcomes in their parents. So if you give your kid a ridiculously early bedtime, like seven or 7.30 when they're, you know, three, four, five, six, they obviously are benefiting physically, but it gives you time to be a grown-up human, to spend time with your significant other, to read a book, to you know do the things that you want to do in your life in addition to parenting. And so there's all kinds of good mental health outcomes that happen when 
kids of all ages get enough sleep. So maybe we can move on a little bit from the sleep conversation and talk a little bit about supporting healthy coping skills in kids. Obviously, this is like a huge topic. This whole topic of mental health in children, obviously people could have multiple PhDs in, but to provide a brief overview, obviously some of the important parts of helping children become savvy to their own mental health is giving them language, is giving them an ability to name and articulate their emotions, to try to recognize the connection between sensations they're having in their body, like an elevated heart rate or an urge to bite their fingernails and connecting that to something like worry. Those can be really important skills that we can build into our children really very early on, three, four, five, that can help them become mental health savvy, even as very young people. And you present a few pointers on how you can support healthy coping, like modeling behavior through your own coping skills under stress that you say children tend to react in a similar manner to the adults in their lives. So if you lose your temper and throw things, guess what your kid will probably do. On the other hand, if you model taking a deep breath, perhaps taking a short walk to process your feelings, your child will be more likely to have a tempered response as well. It's okay to name your own emotions and make your process very explicit. Like I'm feeling angry. I need to walk around the block to calm down before I continue this conversation. The more that I explain to my kids my own emotional state, I feel like the more that I'm building in both modeling how to handle emotions, but I'm also helping them read the emotions of other people. You're teaching them empathy and giving them that that rich mental health emotion language that they are going to use throughout their lives to explain their own inner sensations. Yeah, and I mean, I hope that's helpful. I That was never anything I don't, I don't imagine most of us received when we were kids. I just don't think our, imagine our parents had that much, gave it that much thought. And they just kind of were trying to get by, at least my parents were for sure. Yeah, I think it's been important to introduce words like depression and anxiety to our kids and to kids really early on, just like you would, you know, talk with them about having a cold or feeling like you have the flu, that you cannot feel well emotionally, just like you cannot feel well physically. Because the reality is that many of us have times in our lives when we don't feel well emotionally. You know, a quarter of American adults in any year experience depression or anxiety. So the numbers of people who will encounter these kinds of challenges are significant. So why are we not preparing our children to recognize and know how to respond when they or someone that they love are in the midst of a moment of depression or anxiety? Right, and trying to piece that together yourself as a, I don't know, a kid or a teenager or an adult is, it, it can be hard. I know that, you know, another pointer you have here is help your child identify the root cause of any stress and to brainstorm ways to solve the problem. And I didn't realize until probably 10 years ago, maybe 15, that when I don't get enough sleep, back to the sleep thing, when I don't get enough sleep, I feel like a I have mild depression. And if I don't get enough sleep for multiple days, I can sink into just this deeper and deeper funk. And I become demotivated. And I I don't want to do anything. And I don't want to talk to people. You know, it's this fascinating thing. And so as much of a bummer as it is, and I need to, you know, that I need to get all this sleep, which for me is probably a solid eight, like eight or nine hours is, is good now. 
but I've started like really guarding that. And I've started realizing that when I wake up and I'm super unmotivated, that it's probably, I try to think, how was my sleep quality last night? You know, did I wake up in the night or did I not sleep enough? Maybe if I do a power nap, you know, in the late, late morning or early afternoon, I can at least have something in the, in the afternoon, you know, a time where I'm, I'm more focused. And obviously I have that luxury now, right? Cause I'm not, I'm not working full time, but I think I wished, I wish someone had figured that out for me, you know, or I wish I'd figured that out 30 years ago, to be honest, because there was, there were certainly years there where after I got out of college, I wasn't getting enough sleep, but at my early job, because it was construction, I was getting up at five in the morning and I just had a heck of a time mental health wise. Like I just remember really struggling to make good decisions and struggling to, to kind of break out of that, the perpetual cycle of just not, not being super happy and not really knowing what was wrong with it. So being able to help a child identify root cause of stress and helping them understand that early, I think is, it can go a long way towards helping them realize, you know, some of their unique challenges in life. Yeah. We don't want to raise our children under the illusion that everything is always going to be okay in their lives or that they should always have everything they need to meet every challenge. Our kids are going to have challenges that overwhelm them, whether it's as a seven-year-old or a 16-year-old or when they're 25. And so we want to build in, it's almost like a growth mindset about mental health. Like, okay, I'm overwhelmed. I'm stressed. I'm tired. I'm depressed. This is sort of too much for my coping resources. How do I take care of myself? How do I learn more skills? How do I get more help? How do I rise to meet the emotional or relational or mental health demands that are placed upon me right now by the situation that I'm in? Yeah, that's the idea. I think the idea of growth mindset is important here. I mean, I just asked our 12 year the other, the other day, I said, are we growth mindset or are we fixed mindset? You know, and he said, growth. And I said, all right, what does that mean? And then we talked through it because we were in the midst of, of talking about a challenge that he was struggling with. And I was trying to, it, you know, I was trying to help him through it. It didn't magically make everything better, but at least it got him thinking about, oh, I will beat this. You know, I will beat this challenge because that's who we are. That's, that's how we operate as a family. One of the things that we came up against recently as a family is we were watching the the Hugh Jackman version of Les Miserables and don't ask how we got there but our kids ended up wanting to watch this like very long musical drama opera and it's of course a beautiful movie and a beautiful story if you've if you've seen it but I had forgotten when we started watching the movie that spoiler alert that Inspector Javert kills himself at the end of the movie and we hadn't I don't think our kids have bumped up against suicide very much. The youngest are seven and eight. So it's not really a part of the like Beverly Cleary portfolio. But in this scene, Inspector Javert is talking through how he's encountered a new idea that doesn't fit with his expectation of the world. And it's this really interesting articulation of his emotional and psychological rigidity. He just can't reconcile, you know, this new idea with what he previously believed. And it led to an interesting conversation about, about rigidity and how dangerous it is not to be able to 
integrate new ideas, to learn new things, to be flexible in your thoughts and beliefs, and how when you get really stuck in one way of thinking, it can lead you to believe that you don't have any choices. And of course, that's what happens when this character in the story takes his life. And it was a real short conversation. It wasn't this deep, like existential conversation about the meaning of life and what it means when someone takes their life. And it wasn't, it wasn't like really long or extensive, but I feel like it planted this really important seed about coming to a point of desperation and feeling stuck. And what, of course, we want to teach our children is like, if you feel stuck today, just sort of sit down and wait it out because something will change. But that's that's the opposite of what happens when someone feels suicidal. They feel like they're permanently stuck and they will never be able to change out of it. So I, it's like I want to begin that conversation now because of course, we don't want to say this out loud, but at some point in their lives, one or more of our kids will have a moment when they feel trapped and like they might end their life. And I want to begin the conversation now that says there's always a way out. You just have to wait or get help or those thoughts are not so powerful. And that's this conversation about mental health with kids is helping kids know how to place their own thoughts. They're important. They're valuable. They're good information, but they're not so powerful. They're not set in cement. And you wrap up the blog article with a section on when to seek help. And you talk about, you know, if your child's experiencing high levels of distress or they are having feelings and behaviors that interfere with their normal functioning, then that's when you start to seek an evaluation from a qualified professional. So if they're having ongoing things that are disrupting their schooling, disrupting their home, disrupting their interaction, you know, home life, disrupting their interactions with friends, sleep disruption, a lot of tantrums, developmental regression, picking fights, all that kind of stuff. That's how kids indicate I'm sad and I'm not sure why. And that's when it's time to start looking into something. And obviously if this happens around the time when you move across country and they leave all their friends behind or you change schools or you know a grandparent dies, then maybe you give it a little time for them to adjust and heal. But that's, that's the balance, right? If this sticks around for months at a time and it's really impacting a lot of things around them, it's time to think about taking some action. And we've needed to take that kind of action at different points in our parenting life. And I've been really grateful for the mental health professionals who've come alongside and just helped support us in how we support our kids and help give our kids a space to work through things that for whatever reason, they don't feel like they can work through with us. And I think course, so central to all of our conversations at Zen Founder is to try to end some of the stigma around mental health care. We want to say really clearly to parents, like if your kid is having a hard time in the mental health department, like that doesn't mean you're a failure as a parent. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything other than it's another challenge to help support your kid through. And the way that we risk failing our kids is that we don't appropriately support them when they need help or we don't appropriately support them when their feelings become too much for them. That's how we fail them, not in them getting to that point in the first place. That's just life. That's just kids. Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility with this, you know. I think it's something that our generation or even the generation of parents after my own, I think, I think there's just become a lot more awareness around this topic and, have, you know, how high the responsibility is for, 
for the parents to, to guide this and help our kids realize a lot more about their inner world than just reading some books and sitting in front of a TV, but actually helping them think deeply about how they feel and trying to, to figure out, you know, what that means to prepare them for later in life when they really have to do that stuff on their own. Yeah, well, parenting is about raising grown-ups, right? If we do a good job, we launch people into the world who are going to spend, you know, 60 years living without us. And we have 20 years to equip them with all of the things that they need. And mental health awareness is absolutely on that list of things that they need to be equipped to do well. So we've tried to outline some of those key points in the blog. You can definitely check that out. One of my favorite resources for kids and mental health is the Child Mind Institute. It's an organization out of New York City. My friend Jamie works there. She's one of the psychologists on staff and they provide great really research-backed resources about kids and mental health on kind of every topic you can think of. So we'll put that in the show notes too. That's childmindinstitute.org. And for those not in the know, your next book is all about founder families, right? It's parenting as an entrepreneur. That is true. So come to zenfounder.com, sign up for the mailing list if you want to be sure to hear more about that upcoming book. Thanks for listening to this episode of Zen Founder. Our theme song is A New Beginning by bensound.com used under Creative Commons.